0: You're listening to tech Nest, the PropTech podcast. In each episode, you'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. Discover market opportunities, interesting data, growth tactics, and trends driving the industry forward. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. Hey, Ben. Welcome to
1: the show.
2: Hey, Nate. Great to be here.
1: Glad to have you here. Um, this is going to be something I guarantee you we haven't discussed on the the show yet. I published episode... 180 this morning. So I don't know what that means. The fact that we're going to talk about a new topic, maybe, maybe I just haven't been open minded enough. uh, Or you're solving a very unique challenge.
2: Yeah, we think so. I think, you know, there's a lot of new regulations that have been spreading that enable you to basically productize the creation of new land. And there's that famous Mark Twain quote about how we should buy land because they're not making more of it. And I think that we found a way to do it, which is pretty exciting.
1: Uh, I think so. Well, I, I'm excited to have on the show here today, I've got Ben Bear. He's the CEO and co-founder at the company called Build Casa. And they're still a startup, very early stage startup, in fact. Uh, they've just come out of stealth, having uh, recently cl- closed a pre-seed round of funding. And they're working to help homeowners Sell unused land. Did I get all that right?
2: Yeah, I think you did a pretty good job. Um, so, we're on a mission to build 100,000 homes in existing neighborhoods, and we're leveraging these new upzoning regulations. Uh, SB9 in California is a good example. Um, and basically, what it allows us to do is split single family lots in like 60 days on average um, versus more than a year um, before. I think actually, last time I checked, we were right at about 42 days. Um, on the projects uh, so far. And then what we do once the lots are created is we partner with local builders. So we sell them the lots and then they build new construction, single family homes and duplexes um, in these existing neighborhoods that, you know, often haven't seen new construction in decades just because there haven't been any new lots.
1: I want to get into the details of that. Uh, Cause I think there's actually more than what meets the eye here to unpack uh, before we do. Um, you know, hearing you talk about that, my first thought would be, oh, Ben clearly has done development in the past or has, you know, worked with a, a, a new homes builder at some point or another. And then I look at your LinkedIn and I, I don't see that. Talk to me about your, your experience leading up to this point And then how did you discover this was a problem that you wanted to go pursue?
2: Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you the, the quick and dirty on my background. So, um, grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, you know, after college, you know, go west young man, I was drawn to the, the Silicon Valley startup world. Um, so the first role that I had was, um, as the VP of global revenue for a mobile advertising company. So you know, you're playing temple run, you die at the end of the run, get some coins and watch a video to continue. Um, that ended up being sort of a classic uh, startup montage sequence where we went from, you know, seven people and a dog to over 200 within a couple years, um, scaled revenue to like a $70 million run rate. And then that company sold to Blackstone in 2018. Um, And since then, I've just been, you know, taking on progressively harder, but more exciting and more impactful uh, mission-driven startups. And so uh, most recently, I was a early employee at Spin. Um, we were in the shared micromobility space, um, initially started doing dockless bikes, similar to like the Ofo mm-hmm. Mobike model in China. Um, and then in 2018, when uh, it felt like electric scooters were the next, uh, you know, crypto or, or AI or, or Uber is how people thought about it at the time. Um, it was just a crazy journey where um, we had really focused on being the sort of anti-Uber, the good actor company that works effectively with city governments. Um, Ford really liked that um, and acquired us in uh, late 2018. And then I I was uh, the CEO of the division of Ford um, that that Spin was um, for the last year and a half of that time. And it was a wild journey. We uh, were about a thousand people in five countries when I took over. um, COVID had hit, demand went down over 90% um, in the market. Um, And so we did a big restructuring. We were, you know, it was pretty scary. We were the first layoff after better.com and we Mm -hmm. left all the unprofitable markets. We did a big integration deal with Lyft to boost our ridership. um, And then we sold Spin out of Ford um, in a transaction that closed in the middle of 2022, a nine-figure transaction. Um, And then I've been working on build CASA since last fall. Um, And I think, you know, if if you were to look at my background, um, I'm really good at building large transactional mission-driven startups. And even though I don't have the direct real estate experience, I think what we did at Spin that's really impactful for this opportunity is you've just got to be really good at working with governments in order to do this well. Um, Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to be a partner to them and to understand what their motivations and incentives are in order to get through the process quickly. Um, and to me, this seemed like an opportunity where, you know, this just wasn't something that homeowners were going to really be able to figure out on their own um, because it's essentially asking them to be a developer. Um, my co-founder, Paul, um, has a lot more real estate experience. So he was uh, most recently an architect on HOK at HOK where he worked on projects um, as large as Apple Park and has also done you know, dozens of projects um, ranging from single family homes to independent living um, to large corporate projects. Um, so, really worked on sort of filling out the team with folks that have direct experiences from places like Open Door and Sunday um, that, that know this market better than I than mm-hmm. do. And I've been drinking from a fire hose in terms of learning how homeowners think and how developers think and how we can really unlock this opportunity.
1: Um- I have to ask, I imagine you've got incredible amounts of patience in that you have learned to work with government well. What's the longest you've ever waited on hold?
2: Um, So at Spin, one thing, there was a program that we launched in Pittsburgh, which is my hometown. Um, It was about a two-year process to get from uh, when we had the initial conversations to when we were actually able to launch the service. Um and we in order to do that we actually had to legalize electric scooters in Pennsylvania at the state level. <laughs> um and so we, we ran that process.
1: Oh man. I, I can only imagine the conversations like if people think it's difficult getting in line for the DMV. It sounds like I mean you were <laughs> just, it could be like a pinball machine. I don't wish that on my worst enemy, but um good on you guys being able to accomplish that because I'm also if you didn't know this, I'm a Pennsylvania native. Oh, on the nice. other side of the state, I was born and raised outside of Philly. Put down some time in Harrisburg, uh, so I know the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania legislature has gone through several shutdowns in the last uh, you know decade or so, and uh, it's it's, a it's bit not of a always easy. It's
2: a microcosm of uh, what's been happening at the national level. Yes, yes.
1: So it's a... People in Pennsylvania are like, "Oh, this again? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're used to this, you know." But, but I think you know the
2: important thing to know about governments. And, you know, I I think this is an edge for us. And it's something we're really investing in on the the public policy side. But you have to find the government leaders that, you know, are ambitious and are looking to make their mark and, you know, want to do stuff. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. governments that want to not do stuff. um, And you're not going to convince them um, to be early adopters of new regulations, and they're not the right partners. And so, um, with Build Casa, we've been really focused on jurisdictions initially that are pro housing, and there's actually a pro housing designation that cities are eligible for in California. So, places oh, okay. like Sacramento and San Jose and Riverside um, and San Diego are really favorable in terms of how they work with, um, you know, new housing regulations.
1: And and sorry, who, who what's the, what is like some of the criteria for that designation? And and who's appointing that? Like who's the authority to say this is a pro housing uh, city? I'd not heard of that.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I don't actually know offhand what the official criteria are, but that's it's a okay. designation that you get from California HCD, um, and the cities have to apply, and then they're you know, they sort of get their stamp of approval.
1: Oh, huh, okay. Well, that's that. I mean, that's a good indicator of where to go and not to go. So let let's actually talk to this in, in practical terms here, right? You guys are working with homeowners, as I described, like helping sell the unused land, and as you put it, like almost like creating new land, right? So I'll, I'll use my house. Like I've got this. Uh, I'm on a corner lot. It's like borderline right. a double lot. So let's just say it's a double lot for the for the sake of this, right? So I've got this extra large corner lot, right? Because I was first in line when the community was built, and I just I wanted to make sure I had like enough space. And all right, how do you help me make better use of that land uh, now that I'm like you know I don't want to cut the grass anymore? I just put a house there.
2: Yeah, so I'll walk you through how our process works. So the first thing that we really invested in was. Uh, an algorithm to identify all the underutilized lots that qualify for this new SB nine subdivision process in California. Um, and what's important about the regulation is it reduces the minimum lot size that you need in order to do a subdivision. You know, as long mm-hmm. as you have twelve hundred square feet and, and or forty percent of the lot that's not currently used, it's eligible. The other things that the algorithm looks for are, is it on a corner? Is it an alley lot? Is it a side-by-side lot? Is it a flag lot? Um, And then we're able to index those and really rank them by underutilization and access quality. We then reach out to the homeowners um, through a combination of direct mail. Um, Cold calling has actually been an effective tactic for us, um, as well as real estate agents in the community. And um, we give them an offer um, and it's done through an option contract because there's nothing we can actually buy because the new lot doesn't exist yet. Um, mm-hmm. and basically what that deal does is it gives us the right to purchase the lot after it's created. We then spend some money around fifteen dollars to $20,000 subdividing the lot. Um, and then we make between fifteen dollars and $30,000 from the builder um, when they purchase it from us. And the builder will actually close directly with the homeowner on the lot um, and the whole process from end to end takes about three to six months
1: what is the cost what's costing so so much money to because i mean my head i'm like aren't we just like walking a, a yardstick and measuring you know
2: yeah and then yeah, so, it good um you know just using a, an example lot in sacramento so um this homeowner has a house that's worth about four hundred and fifty thousand um, mm-hmm. dollars. The builder made us an offer for one hundred and forty-two thousand dollars for a portion of the lot, um, and then that fifteen to twenty thousand. I think in in this case it was about seventeen thousand dollars in cost is a combination of surveying costs and application fees for the process, um, mm-hmm. and then you know that's really the the sort of working capital cost that we have uh, in our motion, um, and you know, then what they're paying for is access to this lot. And then about half the time, they'll pay us additional service fees to actually entitle one of our designs for a single family home or duplex on the newly resulting lot. So $142,000 for the lot, you know, roughly $15,000 in cost to get to the subdivision, roughly a $15,000 profit. um, And then the homeowner receives $107,000 in cash in this example, wow. and they keep their house and mortgage, um, which I think is you know, particularly exciting as an option for folks that want to stay in their homes. Um, nobody is really selling right now because they can't mm-hmm. afford an equivalent replacement home, given how much interest rates have gone up over the last couple of years. This right. way, they keep their house and mortgage and they get a windfall of you know anywhere from fifty to $350,000 um, has been the and, range so far.
1: And does that you know, so you mentioned because if they have a mortgage, right? Let's say they have a mortgage and the balance on that is greater than what they'll take home after the, the lot is sold. Does the payout mm-hmm. go to the mortgage company as they're named first on the title or, or first on the on the note, or is there? Yeah, can the ho- homeowner take the cash?
2: Yeah. So the way that it works is we actually underwrite the homeowner's LTV upfront um, and make sure okay. that they have sufficient LTV coverage. Um, in some cases, there is a pay down requirement and we're transparent about that up front with the homeowners. Um, but in most cases, mm-hmm. there hasn't been. And where we've seen particular resonance is among you know senior citizens. They bought their house 20, 30 years ago. They often have the best lots for this. We had uh, two homeowners oh, yeah. come to us together that had two acres, a mile and a half from downtown Sacramento, on which we can use SB9 to put 24 units um, following a uh, a traditional subdivision, um, and you know if there is a paydown, then it just gets netted out of the, the take home amount by the escrow company at uh, close. Mm-hmm. But in most cases, there there hasn't been. Um, and even if there is a paydown requirement, um, then the homeowner could still get that equity back out um, through like a HELOC at that point because they'll own a lot more um, than they did before.
1: Yeah. 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 Oh, that, that makes a ton of sense. And and like you said, especially those who have been in place for a longer time, they probably had a larger lot size to begin with. So that, you know, now that this, uh, with this new law change, um uh, it's going to offer more. Do you, do, do you have an estimate of how many lots, like by your criteria in the state of California, like what's that opportunity yeah. look like?
2: Yeah, so there's about 1.5 million lots um, that we've indexed. um, And in the initial target jurisdictions that we're really focusing on, um, which are like Riverside, uh, Sacramento, Bay Area, San Diego, um, and LA County, um, that's about a million of them. And there are two new regulations that the governor uh, just signed in the last week that expand our opportunity further. Um, So Um, One of them is called AB 1033, um, which is an ADU condoization bill. Um, And so previously, in order for us to be able to offer our service, we needed to have enough extra lot space to split it and get at least 40% of the lot. Um, This way, we can offer a very similar service to folks who only have room for an ADU um, in exchange for essentially selling the ADU rights for that lot. Um, And then there's another one that's been less publicized, called SB 684 that goes into effect in July, um, and that will be a ministerial subdivision lot uh, law for multifamily zones. Um, And that's another 1.6 million or so lots across the state.
1: So that that you could put a multifamily building on the site versus just another single family?
2: So in a multifamily zoned lot, let's say that there's currently a duplex on it, um, Mm -hmm. but there's room for four additional units. You could Mm -hmm. subdivide that and add four more units to that lot.
1: To the one lot. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't have to be four lots, but you could do one lot with four additional units. Wow. Mm -hmm. That uh, seems like a, a, seems like a bigger opportunity, frankly, than I, than I even immediately uh, thought of. And those are only the areas that you're targeting and only in California. Correct. If you had to throw a wild number out there nationwide, similar type cities, like what, what do you think that would put the opportunity at?
2: So there's about 21 million lots in the rest of the country that are greater than 5,000 square feet, um, which is kind of the initial threshold that we use to see like is there enough space to fit at least one additional single family home or duplex. But we're really mm-hmm. focused initially on uh, markets where they have sort of active upzoning regulations in place, and that could be easier subdivision um, or it could be. Reduced minimum lot sizes, um, mm-hmm. like Houston and Austin, have similarly implemented those types of regulations, and that just allows the process to be a lot more productizable, a lot more scalable, a lot more predictable.
1: So you'd mentioned this this term upzoning. And admittedly, it's a bit of a, a new new term for me, but it, it as a trend, a little bit you know across the country, and California tends to lead in some of the like, housing policy trends. If you see something happening in California, I look at Seattle, I look at New York City, like those are the areas I look at to like, hey, what's going to happen in other cities? Um, is that what's driving like the opportunity here? Or is this opportunity been sitting in plain sight and and no one else has yet stepped up to the plate to, to solve for this in this way?
2: It's a bit of both, I'd say. Um, so... Upzoning, why it's important, um, and I'll just use SB9 in California as an example, um, it basically overrides the minimum lot size requirements in a, a given city, um, mm-hmm. and it allows for you to process the lot split without public comment, without planning commission review, without neighbor input, <laughs> and without a sequa environmental review. And so we've been able to do this process in a couple months versus, you know, one to two years in the mm-hmm. before homes. Um, Up Upzoning is a big trend because we've got about 75% of land that's dedicated to housing, which is currently single family zoned in the country. And so this whole idea um, that's been getting a lot of talk on policy fronts of missing middle housing, building, you know, single family homes, duplexes, triplexes and quadplexes, um, mm-hmm. Is really enabled by these regulatory changes, and mm-hmm. as a venture-backed startup, what they allow for um, compared to traditional real estate development is a much faster turnover cycle um, in terms of the lot creation process.
1: As you guys start gaining more traction, you're expanding your footprint. You know, and and this trend continues. I'm I'm gonna assume that the consu- level of consumer awareness will also increase. You know, uh, I think, or, you know, Oregon and a few other areas, right, when they when they first did away with, or they said they did away with single-family zoning, you know, exclusively, right? Like, hey, now you're allowed to, if you have enough room, you can put a duplex on your property or that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It raises interest in search, right? But then people invariably hit the permitting process and just freeze because, I mean, it, it, depending on where you're at, it can be more complicated than not or also very expensive. What do you think consumers will Call this process, and how will they like know to like to find you guys? Like, what 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 do you call it? What do you call like the act of selling your unused land, other than how I just said it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest way to think about it is we're turning the extra lot space into a liquid financial asset um, and really productizing that for the homeowners. Um, It is a subdivision process, but. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. for a homeowner, it's a debt free alternative to a HELOC or a reverse mortgage or some of the other tools that are out there that, you know, might actually put the homeowner in a worse financial position over time. Whereas here mm-hmm. they're getting cash and, and keeping their house and mortgage. Uh
1: I know I know you guys are you mentioned California. Are you eyeing up any other states or are you looking at California Hayes like there's a so much right here, we're gonna we're gonna sit here and and work the ground until we grow tired.
2: There's a ton of room to run in California. um, But, you know, what I learned from uh, the, my, my days in micromobility is you really have to look at it city by city. Um, And while Oregon and uh, California have implemented statewide regulations, there really are dozens of cities that have implemented local ordinances. So um, if you look at Houston, that's a great example. They've been doing this since 1999. Austin just updated their minimum lot size regulations based on the Houston template. Um, Arlington, Virginia, um, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, um, Minneapolis. Um, so there's literally dozens of cities primarily, um, that are looking at similar regulations. Cause mm-hmm. if you look at the housing shortage and there's different numbers out there, but, you know, let's take six and a half million as the overall shortage uh there's currently a 47 state shortage. So if you're not in uh based on the assessment that I saw, you know, Wyoming, North Dakota, Dakota, or West Virginia, you've got a housing shortage to varying degrees. And I think, you know, what's rare and exciting is that upzoning really appears to be a bipartisan nationwide trend. Um I think in the, you know, the more blue states and cities, um there's the yimby movement um and folks really want more housing. You know, no mm-hmm. matter what, um, and then in the red states, and I think Montana just passed a a statewide uh, ADU bill and is also looking at uh, upzoning as well. The argument is, you know, this is your land; you should get to do what you want with it, um, and that's an argument that that has a lot of resonance in those places.
1: I feel like that's the the makeup of a, a good tweet, right? Yimby, and then I don't I don't know what the other one, what the acronym for is. Your, maybe, maybe we'd maybe make one. What's a good... Your land... Yeah, s- yeah I mean...
0: Something.
2: I, I don't have the term for it. <laughs> but the, the rationale in the red states is, you know, Billings or wherever, you guys upzone, you build more housing, just stay away from my ranch, right? And so that's kind of the, the worldview
1: there yeah. that we've encountered yeah.
2: among... You're, you're not
1: making anybody rezone or subdivide, you know? Yeah. Billings isn't too far from me, although even Wyoming's even closer. It's literally like 35 minutes down the road. Uh and I and I can tell you there's plenty of small towns all throughout Wyoming where there's uh probably only like 80% occupancy, but see, there's not a lot of happening in those towns, so I think that's probably why there's the the housing shortage doesn't come up for uh there, but that's a whole other story. Um I'd love to hear a little bit about I know you guys are still relatively young as a company you only just came out of stealth um but invariably with startups you know you have assumptions you try some things and maybe some things work and some things don't do you have any examples of assumptions you had or experiments that you you ran and and turns out that you know something wasn't what you thought it was going to be or went a different direction
2: yeah that's a good question um so I'll start with what turned out like we expected. So um, first, you know, our assumption going in was that the reason that an uh, intermediary facilitator like Casa was needed is that homeowners just wouldn't be able to really figure this out on their own. It's essentially mm-hmm. asking them to be a developer um, mm-hmm. and dealing with, you know, civil engineers and architects and getting a builder to not rip you off and having half a million dollars sitting around to develop a duplex if you're a, a middle-class homeowner just seemed too difficult. Um, a lot of the initial investors that, that we talked to, a lot of the initial VCs were like, why would I ever give up, you know, part of my lot? I want to annex my neighbor's yard. I don't want to give up any of my lot. Um, but it turns out that there just are you know, thousands of homeowners across the state on a fixed income who really could use the extra cash. They want to stay mm-hmm. in their home. They want to keep their mortgage. Um, and so the product market fit on that side of things has been really encouraging. Um, I think we've been surprised that there's been uptake in wealthier areas. I think initially we thought that the response would be really located in in places where you know house values were between like 400 and 700 K. We've seen increasing interest in areas with like one to two million dollar homes. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of the stuff that, has been different than we expected um we initially thought that we would want to downplay the fact that housing would be built at all um on the lots and we actually ran uh, an experiment um, using an alternate brand called we buy ca lots that kind of looked like a more traditional wholesaler uh, framed off i was gonna offer, say did you have painted literally...
1: signs around the neighborhood and yeah. all
2: okay yeah, exactly you went for um, it where uh, we're like well so people just care about the money and they don't care about the housing and the housing is actually negative. We've been pleasantly surprised that, you know, the tide's really turning. And I'm actually telling people that houses are going to get built on these lots and you'll have new neighbors. And people like that. It, it gives them, you know, sort of a rationale, hmm. you know, when friends or family come over and say, why the fuck did you sell half of your lot um, to, to some company? People feel really good about that, that housing will be built there you know, new families will get to experience is these neighborhoods that, you know, our, our customers grew up in and raised their kids in and have mm-hmm. lived in for 10, 20, 30 years.
1: You know, what's interesting about that also is like there's, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm trying to get behind the lens of that customer who, who sells part of their lot. And like new homes tend to help drive value where have all yep. new material, it's all, you know, if you're in an area where all the homes are 20, 30 years old, you're going to have better siding, likely new sidewalks, new driveway, porches and all that kind of, so it's, a, it's to some degree, it's like helping level up the neighborhood in a way that you literally couldn't do any other way. Um, I would be thinking about, I don't know, has that come up from customers where they, they, they see that yeah. as either motivation or a benefit. Yeah, I, think,
2: I think that that is spot on. Um, And it's definitely something that I think will raise house values for all the homeowners. And, you know, if a duplex gets built um, on top of your neighbor's lots and then you have a single family home, it increases the rarity and value of of that as well while introducing Mm. new, you know, starter homes into the, the community. So we definitely think that's true. Another thing that's been surprising is, you know, we were curious about what the value loss would be. You know, basically giving up a piece of the law because obviously, if you're losing too much value, then as a trade for cash, it's not that great of an exchange. But we've seen value loss post-split appraisals be between 1.8 percent and about 10 percent, um, and people are typically receiving you know 15 to 25 percent of the value of their house wow. in cash in, in the initial markets that they're in. So, if we take an example of a $500,000 house. You know, they might lose $50,000 in value on the high end, and then they might get $125,000 or $130,000 in cash. Their property taxes will go down, um, and they'll have less to take care of. And another thing that we see again and again is, like, six-foot grass when we go and and visit these homes. Mm Because we just literally cannot take care of, you know, a half-acre lot anymore, and they, they don't want to. But they don't want to leave the state. They don't want to go to an independent living facility. They want to age in place.
1: Yeah. Um, when you come to South Dakota, I've got a corner.
2: <laughs> we'll come, take a look at it for you. You want
1: to buy yeah. some some grass from me, man? I'll, hey, sign me up. Let's go. Uh, I'm into it. Let me ask you one more question. and I want to get to the bottom of the show. Why now? Why is now the right time to be doing this?
2: I think that there is a recognition among homeowners, among policymakers, and, and among builders um, that we just need a lot more housing. Um, and you know all of the sort of policy tools that the Fed has at its disposal are oriented around reducing demand um, in mm-hmm. order to normalize the market, but it's not going to normalize until there's more supply. Um, and there's just a tremendous gap, um, particularly among starter homes. That are affordable to first time home buyers in the community. Um, And I think that these new regulations really unlock that possibility uh, for the first time in decades. Um, And so, you know, for us, it it feels like there's an opportunity to build a great American company um, that does this and, you know, essentially is, you know, a decentralized Lennar. So, you know, rather than building out into the fire zones, focusing on greenfield sites, can we create? You know, hundreds of scattered site opportunities within an existing city um, in order to generate this new housing stock where there's already infrastructure, where people already mm-hmm. want to live, where the schools are established, where people work. Um, and we're just tremendously bullish on that. I think another enabling factor that's changing is there's just a lot more interest from developers and from homebuyers and renters in properties without parking. Um, that was something that you know, was non-consensus for a long time. But we've seen from places like cul-de-sac that there's a lot of interest among millennials, among Gen Z, um, in really nice area homes in urban areas, even if they don't have a market. Um, and that opens up a lot of potential supply.
1: All right. Well, here we go, Ben. We're going to jump to my favorite segment of the show I like to call For the Future. You've listened, uh, you mentioned you've listened to some episodes, so you might be familiar with this. For the future is a segment where I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Are you ready to play? Yep. All right, let's do this. First one, what does Build Casa look like one year from now?
2: So within a year, we we currently in in the first quarter uh, or the first six months of operation, we have 54 units that we've signed in the pipeline. Um, we're looking to roughly 5x that next year, um, and you know by 2025, I think we should have you know, over a thousand units in the pipeline if, if all goes well. Wow. Uh, there's a lot of interest in this among homeowners, and we've just got to run really fast to build the right operational processes in order to enable this to really be scalable um, and and centralize as much as possible. And, Use technology to make it a more efficient process. And I think we've learned a lot so far, you know, getting through these subdivisions in 42 days on average, that, you know, we can take city to city, state to state as upzoning spreads across the country.
1: Very cool. Question number two this is the time to get out the crystal ball. Over the next three years, how many states will adopt similar upzoning laws to the California law you've been describing, enabling for this sort of subdivision? Um,
2: On the state side, I would expect, you know, probably three to five. Um, But on the city side, I would expect more than 20. Um, And, you know, if you go to a mayor and you say, what are your top three problems? Housing is in that top three um, for Mm -hmm. almost every big city and medium-sized mayor in the country. Um, And you've got to find those early adopters that, you know, still want to do stuff that are up and coming. That want to make a dent. Um, and if you find those folks, they're often willing to work on regulations um, that enable this type of process because they all want to see the housing stock get built. Um, and there's a tremendous alignment of interests there. Um, uh-huh. I think that there's an increasing belief that the private sector can fill some of these gaps um, on core problems. I think if you look at transportation, Brightline trains um, in Florida as a really existing really interesting example um, of sort of public private partnerships to to fix a big problem and do it Mm -hmm. far more cost effectively and scalably, you know, with less government money investing um, Mm -hmm. than if they had relied on uh, government funding exclusively to, to build that system.
1: Yeah, good stuff. Number three here on For the Future, what's one industry trend you think will continue, but you wish would go away?
2: I think everyone probably says this uh, on your on your podcast, but we definitely want to see the interest rate uh, environment normalize. Um, mm. For us, it's a bit counter cyclical in that it helps us in some ways on the homeowner acquisition side of things because you know people aren't selling their homes, but consumer debt um, is rising and they need access to cash. But it does mm-hmm. reduce the offers that we can make because the cost of construction financing for our builder partners is you know, two All and a right. half points higher than it was a year ago. Um, and so we want to get homeowners as much as we possibly can. And we want to make homes as affordable as possible um, for that starter home, first time home buyer demographic. And so, you know, pretty boring. Um, definitely what everyone else says, but it's true that you know some normalization of the road environment would be really helpful. You know, I talked to my dad about this and he was saying, well, you know, we paid a fourteen percent interest rate um, on our house. Uh, how much was that house? Eighty that, four. That—that was the question I asked him. It was eighty thousand dollars. So, um, you know, I think anytime I hear that argument, um, just given how sticky prices are, um, you know, I think we are at a oh, forty-year low um, right now in terms of affordability as a result of that. It's
1: been—it's uh, been a challenge. I'll—I I'll, will tell you though, you're not the. You're not repeating uh what everyone else has said. We haven't had i think one or two other people say interest rates, but if I had to like just randomly guess like the last ten, maybe you're the third out of the last okay. ten interviews. so not everyone's just solely focused on that, but it certainly it depends on your model and if you're transactionally focused uh in the buying and selling a property, interest rates is a significant uh lever at this point in your business for good or for for not so good so Final one here on For the Future, what's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances?
2: I think that um, if you look at prop tech over the last half dozen years, um, there was this initial probably you know, overconfident belief that tech would come and change every access of the process. You know, we'd be... Building homes and factories, everything would be, you know, in the cloud or through the app. And, you know, the reality is that, you know, builders are good at what they do. Um, Mm -hmm. Title firms play an important role. Real estate agents play an important role. And so when we think about the technology that we are really bringing to bear and the process that we're bringing to bear, it's really about enabling those existing stakeholders, not taking away from them, um, making them more efficient. So, on the builder side, making it so they don't have to go through this brain damage of finding these opportunities of doing the pre-development work to get the lot shovel ready, but they can just get a shovel ready lot with an entitled design that we know will be approved by planning and just dig a hole and, and build a house. Um, and what's really also exciting about that is that if you're able to build, spring scale, you know, through these disaggregated lots, there's tradition, there's Significant construction cost benefits that are available. So, you know, if you look at a Lennar or a Pulte or any of the folks doing greenfield development, you know, they're mm-hmm. often in that 100 to 130 dollar a foot range, depending on the grade of the building and where it is, because um, there's some shared efficiencies there. If you were a homeowner and you went out to a builder and you were like, I want to build this duplex um, in Sacramento, they'd probably quote you three to five hundred dollars a foot. Um, the cost that um, wow. you know we're our builders are building at um, is in the like two hundred to two twenty dollar a foot range for one unit. But mm-hmm. we have you know just the first example of a, a builder buying a bundle of four properties that they're gonna be able to develop concurrently that are all within a couple miles of each other. And it's not quite at the Lenar level of cost per square foot, but it's in that like 160 range um, because mm-hmm. they're able to get some efficiencies on the trades and building materials and so forth. And so what I'm really fascinated about and what's really encouraging is that you can bring some of those production scale building efficiencies, leveraging mm-hmm. stick belt, um, to, uh, scattered sites. Um, and that's something that we're really excited about enabling.
1: Very cool. All right, Ben, I've got three more questions for you. These are a little bit focused more about you. So our listeners get to know you just a bit better. First one, what are you reading?
2: Um, so right now I just finished up the SBF book um, which was really fascinating oh. on uh, FTX the the Michael Lewis book not learning mm-hmm. any lessons from it but you know I think if we look back at the last couple years in tech um, you have to be really honest about what your business is um, you have to be really transparent and you have to deliver for all the stakeholders and you know there's been some folks that, have had great outcomes and never built anything that was a profitable business. And coming from the electric scooter world, I, I saw that personally. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's really important um, that we build something that, even though it's venture backed, if you know a, a general contractor or a real estate operator in the Midwest were to look at our business, it's structurally sound and it makes sense and it has, you know, profitable economics.
1: Oh, very interesting. Number two, who are you learning from?
2: I've been learning a lot from our builder partners and then also just from other experts in the space who have more experience in, you know, pre-development and real estate development uh, than I do. Um, I was at uh, the reconvene conference in LA a couple weeks ago, which
1: was really fascinating.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, And just learning how those folks think and what they optimize for and, where the bodies are that you want to avoid. It's always better if you can learn from the experience of others versus having to make all the mistakes yourself has been uh, really yeah. valuable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Where are the booby traps? What do I need to know about this place here that is good um, to know? Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of real estate trades that people made a lot of money on over the last 10, 15 years that just aren't working in the current mm-hmm. rate right environment. So, you know, in most places, Multifamily is not penciling at all. Um, Obviously, office is really challenged. Um, Industrial still seems to be um, going pretty well from a supply constraint perspective
0: Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm.
2: good markets. But really, and luxury is in a lot of trouble um, right now as well, because Mm -hmm. how many people can afford a $20,000, $30,000 a month mortgage payment um, in this rate environment? But starter homes, there's still tremendous demand. The prices haven't gone down at all because there is such a fundamental supply gap where everybody's been running towards luxury yeah. or greenfield and only really mom and pops are building starter homes right now.
1: Yeah, it, it certainly is a challenge. I mean, first-time home bu- first-time home buyer demand is relatively stable regardless because it's your first time buying so the price is, is what it is, the financing is what it is. There's no real comparative if you will uh, but for anyone who's holding a sub 4% interest rate, boys, has it got to be difficult to let that go to go somewhere else. And it's limiting how much is trading on the market right now, of course. Last one here. What inspires you?
2: Um, I think that I've always been drawn to opportunities that have a tangible societal benefit. Um, and there's good things and bad things about that. Those businesses mm-hmm. tend to require you know, more brain damage and and more grit than, you know, building a B2B SaaS platform. Um, but I really like getting up in the morning and being able to walk over and talk to people, like real people that we've helped, you know, see real units going up that will provide new homes to families. And, you know, that tangibility, I just, I can't escape it um, with the problems that I choose to, to focus on because, you know, literally it, it, it's just such a big need. Um, For for human beings. And I I will steal something from the last one. It's very high on Maslow's hierarchy hierarchy of needs. And it's just a fundamental problem. And we've structurally underbuilt in this country for so long, um, that the only real solution is more supply. Um, And we've got to find a way to, you know, redraw some of these lot lines that were arbitrarily drawn 50, 100 years ago, often for Mm. exclusionary reasons.
1: I I get it totally. Do Ben, it's been awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, and I'm really actually I'm I'm very glad we were able to have this conversation. Um, tackling it with I, I can't quite get my head around wanting to take this on. Uh, I think a very large challenge, but I think it actually has a lot of benefit to communities uh, as well as the you know the direct homeowners that you have an opportunity to work with. Before we close out, for those who want to get in touch with you and or learn more about Build Casa, where do they go? How do they do that?
2: Yeah, so our website's buildcasa.com, uh, buildcasa dot b u i l d c a s a, and then my personal email, if anyone wants to reach out, is just bb buildcasa.
1: Awesome. Well, Ben, I, I appreciate it. Uh, possibly, I get a chance to see you around at some of the events, uh, and uh, when you guys do expand up to South Dakota, maybe I can sell you as part of part of my lot here Looking on the forward to
2: that day. And, and thanks for everything you <laughs> do for the the Prop tech community.
1: I appreciate that. We'll see you later. Right.
0: Maybe Nate. Thanks for listening to TechNest, the PropTech podcast. Find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode on technest.io. You can get future episodes delivered to your ears directly by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast apps. Follow Technest on social media to stay up to speed on new developments, resources, and announcements in PropTech. Your support is greatly appreciated. There's two ways you can directly support this podcast. Share episodes you find interesting, and then leave a review of the show in the app store from nate and the tech nest team thanks for listening